Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. What? I'm your host, Tom Kearns, and welcome to the Anglo-Saxon England podcast. Episode 34, King Athelwolf. The birth date of King Athelwolf, son of King Edgbert, is unknown, as is the name of his mother. The first recorded reference to him is at the Battle of Ellendon in 825. He was old enough there to fight alongside his father, and then to be sent to conquer Kent a few years later. He reigned as a sub-king in Kent until Edgbert's death in 839. His reign in Kent is recorded in some charters, and in them we get a sense of how he worked with his father. Edgbert needed his son's permission to grant land or alienate land in Kent, and the pair seem to have worked to cultivate Kentish support by building positive relations with the Kentish Ealdorman and purging Mercian sympathisers. This may have included Archbishop Wolfred, who was himself Mercian, and during whose leadership, Edgbert seized land from the Church at Canterbury. This break seems to have been healed under Wolfred's successor, Chaelnoth, who probably was more open to supporting the West Saxons. Despite his help in rooting out Mercian sympathisers, what role, if any, Athelwolf played in his father's brief conquest of Mercia is unknown. In 838, Edgbert summoned a council to meet at Kingston in Surrey. Here the older king, who was probably aware that his death was close, demanded oaths that the West Saxon nobility and church would support Athelwolf and his heirs as king. At the meeting, the monasteries of Kent even chose Athelwolf as their lord, giving him the right to elect their heads. He refused this, and instead opted to let them elect their own heads, but this reflects the extent to which Chaelnoth acquiesced to Edgbert's and Athelwolf's control of Kent and the English church more generally. Edgbert died in 839, and Athelwolf succeeded him, making him the first king in West Saxon history to succeed his father, since the probably legendary founders of the kingdom. He is known to have had two wives during his life. The senior and the mother of his children was Osber. When she died or was repudiated, we don't know, but it must have occurred at some point before his pilgrimage to Rome in 855, since it was on that pilgrimage that Athelwolf married his second wife, Judith, the daughter of the Emperor Charles the Bald, but I'll say more about her later. As king, it is obvious that Athelwolf learned from his father's example. Upon ascending to the throne, he made his oldest son, Athelstan, sub-king of Kent, and all the small kingdoms to the east of Wessex. However, he did not give Athelstan the same freedom that Edgbert had given him. For instance, it seems that Athelstan did not have the power to grant charters. Athelwolf treated Kent as essentially a part of Wessex, while also taking strides to give the Kentish nobility some independence. 
Therefore, when Athelwulf convened meetings in Kent, he would summon only the Kentish nobility rather than absorbing them into the larger West Saxon kingdom. He continued his father's policy of ruling Kent through her native Ealdorman rather than imposing foreigners, a tactic that had served the Mercians quite badly. Janet Nelson notes that this is similar to how the Carolingians governed their vast multi-ethnic empire. This was probably intentional, since Athelwulf certainly had close connections to Francia. For example, in the 840s, Athelwulf had a Frankish secretary called Felix, who was probably tasked with producing the king's charters in a manner similar to that found on the continent. Further evidence for this close tie between Britain and Francia can be seen in the Annals of Saint-Bertin, which took great interest in the Viking attacks on Britain, and in 852, when Lupus, the abbot of Ferrières, who wrote a letter to Athelwulf congratulating him on his victory over the Vikings at the Battle of Arkley. In the same letter, he also requested a gift of lead to cover his church roof. Lupus also wrote to his most beloved friend Felix, asking him to manage the transportation of the lead, a sign clearly of the close links between Carolingian ecclesiastical nobility and the court of Athelwulf. Athelwulf also sought to maintain peaceful relations with Mercia, something his father had begun to do following the return of Wilaf to the Mercian throne. London, for example, was traditionally a Mercian city, but in the 830s it was under West Saxon control. Soon after Athelwulf's succession, though, it reverted to Mercian control. After Wilaf's death in 839, his successor Beotwulf revived the Mercian mint in London, and it seems to have operated for a time as a joint mint for both Mercia and Wessex, possibly indicating West Saxon help in reviving Mercian coinage, and definitely showing the friendship which now prevailed between the two kingdoms. Possibly in return for London, the Mercians gave Berkshire to the West Saxons at some point between 844, the last reference to it as part of Mercia, and 849, the year that Alfred was born at a royal estate in the Shire. However, despite the changeover, the local Mercian Ealdorman, also a man called Athelwulf, retained his position after the transfer, yet another example of King Athelwulf choosing to rule through local vassals so as to maintain peace. Following Beotwulf's death in 852, Wessex and Mercia came into even closer cooperation under Burgred, who married Athelwulf's daughter Athelswith in 853. In the same year, Athelwulf also assisted Burgred in an invasion of Wales, meant to restore Mercian hegemony over the Welsh. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of the new Medal of Honor podcast from Evergreen Podcasts, brought to you in partnership with the National Medal of Honor Museum. In each three-minute episode, We'll learn about a different service member who distinguished him or herself through an act of valor. We'll include stories from the Civil War to Iraq and Afghanistan, and from all branches of the military. We'll talk about service members who were overlooked for the medal at first, 
due to their race or religion, and about those who were celebrated at the time. We'll hear stories of soldiers like Audie Murphy, future Hollywood star who mounted a burning tank to hold off German infantry in World War II, and people like Dr. Mary Edwards Walker, a Civil War Army doctor and the only woman to receive the Medal of Honor so far. Learn about these heroes and more wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, listener. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. I just wanted to let you know that if you enjoy what I'm doing here, then it really helps me when you leave a review or a rating on the podcast provider you're using to listen to this, when you subscribe to the show's YouTube channel, or when you become a supporter over on Patreon, where you can get access to bonus episodes, ad-free episodes, and transcripts for as little as $3 a month. And speaking of patrons, I want to give a shout-out to Julie Rich and Tom Slopnik, who recently became patrons. Thank you so much for your support, and I hope you are enjoying the extra material you now have access to. Anyway, back to the show. Athelwulf's reign coincided with an intensification of Viking activity across Western Europe. Beginning in the 840s, marauding Scandinavians became a persistent thorn in the side of many English kings. Wessex, partly due to its location in the southwest of England, seems to have been somewhat shielded at first, except for an invasion by a large Danish army in 843, which defeated Athelwulf at Carhampton in Somerset. It was in the early 850s, though, that Vikings truly began to menace Wessex, and especially the exposed sub-kingdom of Kent. In that year, Athelstan, the eldest son of Athelwulf and sub-king of Kent, fought a naval battle, in fact it's the first recorded naval battle in English history, off the coast of Sandwich, at which they were victorious, but which may have shortened Athelstan's life, since he vanishes from the historical record after this. Throughout the 850s, Vikings would frequently use the islands off Kent as resting places prior to marching further inland. In 851, the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle records five different raids on southern England, including the capture of London, at which King Beowulf of Mercia was killed. See the episode on the fall of Mercia for more. The same force which captured London then invaded Wessex, where it was defeated by Athelwulf in battle at a place called Arkley. Despite the defeat in 843, Athelwulf on the whole seems to have been successful in holding off the Vikings. As his victory at Arkley suggests, he was able to stand his ground against them. That is something that can't be said for all other Anglo-Saxon kings at this time. However, the anxiety caused by the Viking activity may have partly inspired one of the more mysterious and controversial parts of Athelwulf's reign. At two points seemingly in his reign, Athelwulf undertook a decimation of his estates. Despite its negative associations today, which come more from its classical origins, decimation, as used here, means the donation of a tenth part of something, usually to the church in the form of a tithe. Athelwulf's decimation is a hotly debated part of his reign. Both the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle and Asa, who seems to have been quoting from the Chronicle, refer to the decimation and link it to preparations for Athelwulf's pilgrimage to Rome in 855. The two writers, although offering quite different images of the decimation, both say that it saw the king release a tenth of his land throughout his kingdom from royal service and tribute. 
Much of the debate subsequently has been about what land specifically was released, and what it was released from, since the accounts given by the Chronicle and Asser do not align exactly with the other evidence which exists for Athelwolf's decimation. There are 14 charters, which purport to have been created during the decimation. Of these, five are generally thought to be forgeries, leaving us with nine, which are tentatively treated as authentic. Of these, two originate from Winchester, and are dated to 844, while six from Wilton are dated to 854, and a final one is from Rochester and is dated to 855. Thus, right away, the suggestion that the decimation occurred in 855 in preparation for the pilgrimage to Rome is debunked. A decimation may have occurred in 854, and later been extended to Kent in 855, but what of the evidence for an earlier decimation in 844, and what do these charters say about why the decimation occurred? Beginning with why, all of the authentic charters open with formulaic assertions that the king was granting away his rights to earn divine favour and salvation for his people. In the 844 charters, this is explicitly linked to the attacks of the pagans, i.e. the Vikings, suggesting that what is called the first decimation of 844 was inspired by the increase of Viking activity, and perhaps specifically by the defeat at Carhampton in 843. The inspiration for the second decimation is less clear, the link to the pilgrimage being made only by later writers. Since there was again an increase in Viking activity in the 850s, the second decimation may have had a similar inspiration to the first, and certainly the charters from 854 use much the same language of perpetual liberty and salvation that the 844 charters did. Exactly what the decimations did, though, is a more perplexing issue. Simon Keynes has suggested three possible effects. One, that it turned one-tenth of the royal demence, lands owned by the crown but not part of the king's personal property, from folkland into bookland, thus allowing it to be exempted from certain royal dues. Two, that it booked one-tenth of folkland to its owners, specifically to be given to churches. And three, that it was a reduction of secular burdens on existing bookland by one-tenth. No one is entirely sure which of these is correct, and it's unclear if either of the decimations actually came into effect. However, whichever of these is the case, in principle, the decimations of Athelwulf are a major shift in Anglo-Saxon domestic policy, since it would reflect an enormous reduction in the size of the Anglo-Saxon state, and a significant blow to the coffers of the royal treasury. We need to remember that the authenticity of all the decimation charters is suspect. Some may be genuine and others not, it's even possible that none of them are genuine. But even if this was the case, then we are still left with the unclear statements of the Chronicle and Asser about some kind of large-scale change in land law occurring during Athelwulf's reign. The decimation and the subsequent pilgrimage earned Athelwulf the ire of many early modern Anglo-Saxon historians, who saw in them zealotry which fundamentally destabilised the West Saxon kingdom. Modern scholars are kinder to Athelwulf, but the decimation still poses a problem, since it does seem like a drastic shrinking of the king's financial power at a time of growing external threat. It's not unprecedented for early medieval kings to take drastic steps when faced with dire crisis, but Athelwulf's response, if response it was, seems to have been strange. 
This is Peter. And this is Tom. We want to tell you guys a little bit about our podcast. Tom and I met in college, became best friends, and then teachers almost 20 years ago. Sometimes school just does not allow us to elaborate on the topics that we find interesting, like the real shark attacks that inspired the movie Jaws, or the real historical context to Indiana Jones artifacts. Where does cereal come from? Or are zombies real? Does Ben Franklin really deserve to be on a $100 bill? On our podcast, just like in our class, there are no stupid questions. Just two friends having a lighthearted conversation about history, pop culture, and the context of current events. Listen to History Teachers Talking Podcast from Evergreen Network, anywhere you get your podcast. A news story gets shared by a friend on social media, or you catch a tweet that really makes your blood boil. But how do you separate fact from fiction? That's the premise behind Disinformation, a 10-part series from Evergreen Podcasts and Emergent Risk International coming this fall. Tune in to Disinformation wherever you get your podcasts. And remember, don't believe everything you read. Regardless of the decimation, in 855, Athelwolf travelled to Rome along with his youngest son, Alfred. Before leaving, he appointed his second oldest son, Athelbald, as king, and made his third son, Athelbert, sub-king of Kent. The group of pilgrims stayed with the Frankish emperor, Charles the Bald, before proceeding to Rome, where they stayed for about a year. Athelwolf brought with him lavish gifts, including a gold crown weighing four pounds, two gold goblets, a sword bound with gold, four silver gilt bowls, two silk tunics, and two gold interwoven veils. He also gave gold to the clergy and leading men, and silver to the people of Rome. His aim in this massive expense was probably to demonstrate that the wealth and generosity of the West Saxons could rival that of any Carolingian or indeed any other continental ruler. The pilgrimage is a problem for historians. The 840s and the 850s, as I've said, saw a marked increase in the number of Viking raids all across England. Thus it seems odd that Athelwolf would leave his kingdom during a time of dire need. Several suggestions have been offered for this. Firstly, it is possible that Athelwolf thought he was dying, and thus undertook the pilgrimage for reasons similar to those of his predecessors. When he recovered while in Rome, he chose to return to his kingdom something which none of his predecessors had apparently done. Another possibility is that he undertook the pilgrimage for religious reasons and always intended to return, again a remarkable assumption on the part of an early medieval king, since there was no precedent for such an act. In fact, in the past, whenever a king left his kingdom, he then immediately lost it to someone else. Lastly, he may have made the pilgrimage out of a desire to further cement his place as a major ruler on the European scene, like that of his friend Charles. We will never know for sure, but we can speculate. Another remarkable feature of his journey occurred as the party returned to England. While staying again with Charles, Athelwolf, probably middle-aged at this point, married Charles's then 12-year-old daughter Judith. The Carolingians were famously stingy about who they allowed to marry into their dynasty, so it's a testament to either the closeness of the bond between Charles and Athelwolf, or the intense pressure posed by Viking raiders on both kingdoms, since through the marriage they both gained powerful allies, who could play a major role in 
quashing Viking activity through the chokehold of the English Channel. The extraordinariness of the marriage didn't end there, though. In addition to the wedding, Judith was anointed as Queen of Wessex by Hinkmar, Abbot of Reims, and this too was a marked innovation, since prior to this, Carolingian queens were not anointed, only Carolingian empresses. It was also shocking to the West Saxons, who, according to Alfred's biographer Asser, did not even allow queens to sit beside their husbands, since they held the position of queen in no special regard. Whatever the reason for the marriage, it almost certainly united Athelwulf and Charles in familial bonds of friendship, and possibly even formed the basis of an anti-Viking alliance. It probably also resulted in the rebellion that Athelwulf faced upon his return to Wessex. Having gone to such great lengths to secure the line of succession between his sons, Athelwulf's marriage to Judith, her powerful family, and her consecration as queen all probably threw a grenade into his plans for peace in Wessex. Upon his return in 856, Athelwold refused to simply let his father retake the throne. The exact causes of Athelbald's rebellion are unknown. Scholars have suggested that it was provoked variously by Athelwulf's new wife, the decimation of 854, or by the expectation that Athelwulf would not return from Rome. A more deep-rooted cause for the 856 rebellion may be a historic distinction between East and West Wessex, represented by the two dioceses of Sherborne in the West and Winchester in the East. The ancient Selwood Forest marked the border between these dioceses, and it was asserted by Asser that Athelbald's rebellion was fomented in the depths of Selwood. Both the bishops of Sherborne and the Ealdorman of Somerset, both of whom were major players in Western Wessex and previously close allies of Athelwulf, supported Athelbald, adding fire to the idea that Athelbald's rebellion represented the disgruntled voices of Western Wessex. The Westerners perhaps resented the growing power of Winchester, which had received much patronage under Athelwulf, and the prestige given to the heir apparent as the sub-king of Kent, which naturally drew the attention of the king towards the eastern part of the kingdom. The rebellion is somewhat problematic for historians too, since Asser is our only source for it. The chronicle says nothing about it. Asser also tells us that open civil war was avoided only by Athelwulf agreeing to divide Wessex, with Athelbald remaining king in the west, and either Athelwulf ruling in Kent, or his ruling the eastern part of Wessex and keeping Athelbert in Kent. We don't actually know which. The situation thankfully only lasted for a couple of years, as Athelwulf died in 858. Upon his death, the situation in Wessex returned to what it had been in 855, with Athelwald ruling in Wessex and Athelbert ruling as sub-king in Kent. In his will, Athelwulf again displayed his interest in securing the dominance of his dynasty, since he left a bequest to whichever of his sons would live the longest. The exact meaning of this has been debated, with some seeing it as a way to ensure the throne remained in the hands of his sons, and others seeing it as a way to ensure that all of his sons were provided for. It has some fairly obvious flaws, not least being that it seems to incentivize murder, but that seems to have been avoided with the remaining sons of Athelwulf each looking after each other. Athelwulf's full will hasn't survived, only a description of it in the life of Asa, so we don't actually know the details of his bequest or the stipulations that he placed upon it, but it does seem that he was successful in securing the throne for his sons. In the wake of his father's death, 
Athelbald married his stepmother Judith, a sin in the eyes of the church and an act which horrified ecclesiastical writers, and so began a fraught several decades which would see England overrun by Vikings and Wessex brought to its knees, with all but one of Athelwulf's sons dead. Thank you for listening. I've been your host, Tom Kearns, and I hope you'll come back and listen to the future episodes of the Anglo-Saxon England podcast. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing, and now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino-style games to choose from, with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere, and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.